This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I think as we look at how to do things rightly or how do we do justice or how do we exact uh, justice for people who have been disenfranchised or marginalized, we also need to look at what we see laid out in scripture as well. I think as men and women of faith, we need to call out the social inequities within our culture. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Alien Chronicles. Today's guest, John Aragon, is an entrepreneur who specializes in multidisciplinary design and branding. Intriguingly, John is also a preacher, which is a rather unconventional combination, in my opinion. As a second-generation Colombian-American and as a part of the Afro-Latinx community, John's background allows him to offer a unique perspective when approaching design and problem-solving. John's spiritual identity wholly informs his work as a designer. He sees himself as a servant of Christ and works with the goal and intention of using his talents to assist organizations and individuals to the best of his ability. In fact, John has named his own design company, John Doulos, with doulos meaning servant in Greek. John serves on the teachings and preaching team at his church in Tampa, Florida, and mentors young men, empowering them to perceive and pursue their calling. John is also the co-founder of Native Supply, a clothing brand whose apparel takes contemporary street style and meshes it with messages relating to one's personal devotion to God. Welcome, John. So good to have you on my show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Love the intro. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll start with your walk. Tell me a bit about your work and how did you become interested in design? Yeah, yeah, I love that. So one, my faith has just been uh, a journey, right? So I come from a family that has a long legacy of faith and pastors and preachers. My family's from Colombia, of course. Uh, So my dad's a preacher. He's a pastor and a missionary. So growing up in a in a home, faith-based home, going to church every Sunday, you know, and, and growing in that environment, the abridged version of it, basically, the first several years going er, to my early teen years, I think a lot of my faith was just perceived as organized religion. And going into high school, my freshman year just had a really personal experience. At one point, my life was threatened and the, the God was just very gracious. And uh, since then, I, I've, I've really just been living it out and trying to be vocal and bold about my faith and uh, ascribing to the truths that God's word lays out in scripture. In terms of design, I give all of the credit to my sister. So I'm one of you know four siblings and two older sisters, one younger. My oldest sister studied fashion design. And uh, I remember as kids, my oldest sister would run into my mom's closet, get her shoe boxes 
and cut them out into like little outfits. And, uh, you know, at the time when I was a kid or teenager, my dad taught me programming and coding, he taught me how to build computers. But being around my sisters and my oldest sister and dear specifically, I think by way of osmosis, I just fell in love with the idea of creating to some degree something out of like the ether, right? And uh, just applying like a color palette to it. And, you know, something I just love the visual arts that as a whole, because you can really communicate truth that, through that medium. Right. So I fell in love with design at a very early age, just by observing my sister and uh, going into high school and undergrad, just studied it, perfected some of my skill set. And that's what I mostly do today. So can you talk about the kind of projects that you have worked on recently? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I really love partnering with organizations and nonprofits to kind of further their cause. Um, one project I recently worked on um, last year going into this year is the immigration project. So uh, the co-founder, Rondell Trevino, just great brother, and he's a phenomenal advocate for immigrant rights, but uh, helped them with branding and web development. So that's one recent project I've worked on recently that um, I'm pretty proud of just because of, you know, some of the value sets that that organization has. But I've worked with organizations within faith communities, outside of faith communities, so it really varies. So you've mentioned that your father is a preacher and he influenced you when you were growing up. So it, to me, it seems that your work is informed by your like by teachings of um, your faith. Right. So and it seems to me it's a natural progression. You grew up in a household where the father was a preacher and there was a lot of talk around that. How do as an entrepreneur and a preacher, how do you balance the two? Like uh, what are some of the challenges and, and what are some of the benefits of, of being both? I think in terms of balance, what has helped me is just finding a healthy rhythm. One one of my good friends described it one way, which I thought was good, but he described it as a pendulum, right? So in some seasons, I can really invest myself in, you know, uh, enterprising and, you know, building business and assisting individuals and organizations to further their cause. But as an ongoing basis, I really have a heart for God's people and people as in general, really just seeing people come to full maturity in their faith. So from season to season, it can feel like a pendulum. But as I mentioned briefly, uh, for me, it's just been having a healthy rhythm where I'm not taking too much on, where I'm fulfilling my responsibilities here in my local church on a volunteer basis, and then also fulfilling my responsibilities as a business owner and entrepreneur. And some of the benefits in that I've seen is I've been able to take some of my uh, skill sets that I've gained from corporate America, um, working in that for several years, and really apply it to some of the faith communities I'm a part of now. So that's been really encouraging to see, meaning uh, if it's things like strategy or digital expansion, applying those things to help organizations, faith-based organizations or nonprofits to further their cause. So that's been um, encouraging to see. Some of the challenges I think is I, I think I'll always have a natural affinity to design and aesthetic. And personally, I have somewhat of a disdain towards my profession as well, right? In terms of design and marketing, you're trying to sell a product and have people buy into it. So uh, in, in that sense, I often find myself kind of wrestling with that, right? 
um, trying to sell someone a product or a solution to fulfill their objectives or their goals, which is ne needed and necessary. But another part of me is God is sovereign. He'll take control of it regardless of how the product looks like at the end of the day. But part of the reason why I, I, I work as hard as I do in what I do is my just my faith in Christ really informs that. And just uh, the ethics that God lays out sp specifically in the Old Testament and all throughout the New Testament, I think drives all of us men, women, um, within even different faith communities to provide products and solutions and work that glorifies God um, in a way that is professional and brings the most out of of people's, you know, products and what their needs are. So, so John, talking about, again, this, this, these synergies that exist between your faith and your work, let's talk about your brand, Native Supply. And it's it's a clothing brand, right? How would you describe the type of style that the brand embodies? Can you talk about what is the goal of Native Supply? What are you trying to achieve through that? The goal that we have as a company is to stir people's personal affections towards God. That's the goal. And what we produce in terms of merchandising, cut and sew fabrics, et cetera, just serves as a medium to communicate biblical truths, right? So what we found really early on is as we were developing product and showcasing it and putting it out there and marketing it is we started just to get feedback from people who became fans and um, really felt to be part of like this like tribe that we're creating within it. And I remember one uh, message we we received now about two years ago, uh, a girl, no more than, you know, maybe 16, 17 years old, she bought one of our pieces, young believer, uh, growing in her walk and in maturity in Christ. And uh, the piece that we have that says not today, Satan, that's really popular that we've put in various products. She said, one, she got so much attention for it just because the design was so cool, but she didn't realize how much boldness it just gave her. Right. So now she was able to have conversations with people about her faith just because of, you know, a piece of fabric with, you know, ink on it. So as we started to see some of those stories coming coming in, we started to realize like, wow, part of the ethos of who we are as a company is to help people grow in their relationship with God. Right. The our products are just the canvas for that is specifically. But the real goal is to you know stir personal uh, devotion to God through everything that we do. So our faith and who we are and what we believe really informs everything that we do as a company. So all that goes, everything from, you know, being professional all the way to like just ethical processes and developing our product as well. We're really, really conscious of that. So John, what kind of following has your brand amassed so far? And also, does it transcend cultural and religious boundaries? Is it specific to Christian community? Yeah, yeah, great question. So the brand really grew out of this, uh, and just really this 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 wave that my business partner KB created years ago called HDA, His Glory Alone. And over the years, that's turned into so much more like a lifestyle. So we use that and put that on all of our clothing. What we also started to see, too, is within the Christian arts, just speaking a bit more broadly, within the Christian arts, people tend to accept or, you know, champion something because simply because it's Christian, not because it's good. So we really wanted to do both and, right? This is something that would communicate the truths of God's word, but it's also quality. 
So as we pursued the quality aspect of that, we started to see people even outside of faith communities come in and buy our merchandising just because they love the attention to detail that we put into it and the messaging behind it as well. Um, that's one of the things we pride ourselves in is into that. It's not simply a selling product, but we're putting out messaging that have that creates this conversation and have people think about their faith and how they're having conversations with others outside of the faith. So uh, we've seen it transcend, really. We've seen it with atheists. We've seen it with people with outside of Christian communities. And that's really, really encouraging for us. Uh, regardless of you know how much more the brand continues to grow, which we're sure it will, but just seeing it transcend, which I we didn't expect it to do that as quickly as it's done it, but uh, it's definitely transcending. Some of the messaging resonates with so many people, uh, so that's been really encouraging. Going back to your childhood and and your Afro Latinx identity, uh, growing up, how did it inform? your outlook on life? How much has it informed the kind of work that you do and how you you believe in this outreach beyond your own religious and cultural affiliations? Yeah, so as an Afro-Latino, Afro-Colombiano to be exact too, both of my parents are from Colombia. So my mom's from Cali, the city, and my dad's from Buena Ventura, the coast. So he loves fish. My mom's bread and rice and soup, sancocho all day. So coming here stateside, what, one of the challenges I faced, and I know other fellow Afro-Latino people have faced as well, is you. I struggled with, and I'm sure others have struggled with, like this cultural identity, right? So for me personally, um, growing up here stateside, I looked African-American, but Spanish was my first language. So, you know, when I had some of my classmates, I remember, you know, middle school quoting Bone Thugs and Harmony and Pac. And uh, I knew Grupo Nietzsche, like it's a Colombian salsa group, but I didn't, I, I wasn't familiar with everything that they had grown up with in their culture. So one of the challenges I faced was I looked African-American, but I wasn't African-American. And then even within, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, we you see color casts everywhere. So even within Latin communities, I faced a lot of racism as well because I didn't look like what people would see on Univision or Telemundo, right? So, oh, you're not black, right? Or you're not Latino. So I came at a very early age. I really strugg struggled with this identity crisis where I wasn't fully embraced by my Latin community because I didn't look Latin. And I couldn't fully be embraced by the African-American community because I didn't grow up African-American. I grew up Colombian. So that for me caused a lot of like deep soul searching. And in part, I eventually led me to find my full identity in Christ. But even in that, it took years for me to just become comfortable in my skin and also form this new identity. Right. So I have these Latin roots. And I'm very proud of being Colombian, but I also have this newfound identity of growing up in America here stateside, but being submerged within American culture while also trying to hold on to my own Latin identity. So that was really difficult. I remember even prior to marrying my wife, I told I would share with her various stories about different prejudice or racism that I had faced as an Afro-Latino. And uh, she was like, wow. And she'd be, you know, kind of 
taken aback by it. And, you know, one one uh, at one time we went to a New Mexican restaurant I hadn't been to before. What I'm going to describe next has happened to me often and it still happens to me today. So we go inside the restaurant where we meet just kind of like a group of friends there, just a few of them. My wife and I sit down and uh, the waitress comes by. She speaks Spanish to some people, English to others. I look at her, speak Spanish to her, ask her, you know, what's in the menu? Completely ignores me. My body is facing her and I'm directing, you know, I'm asking her these questions, completely ignores me. So I look at my wife and I, and we got up and left. And that, that's, that's a reality that there's so many stories like that, but that's a reality that I've dealt with. And I know other Afro Latinos have dealt with in various parts of the country here stateside, and even, even in South America to some degree as well, right? In certain communities. But so how that's helped inform how I look at my work, I think when I look at the creative process and trying to solve these solutions, I think empathy is really important. So here's a he, here's a problem that a setter group of people have. How do we create a solution that speaks to those pain points? How do we create a product that resonates with their narrative and their story? So that can be anything from like digital product or you know pick pack and shipping stuff or you know something that you would sell in various mediums. So I, my personal experience has really helped me grow in empathy with various people groups and various communities, regardless of their socioeconomic background. Um, so I think empathy is really important. And my personal experience has really helped me with that. So I try to re remove myself as much as possible, try to put myself in the other person's shoes, but then also look at my own personal experience and try to think about what would have helped me to some degree and what are some of the solutions that would be important. So, so we've, we've talked about how your faith is pervasive in everything that you do. And and there is this perception in the U.S. that people who are religious or who have strong religious affiliation are also conservative. And, and, and in today's America, conservatism has a very specific meaning. We are talking about political affiliation and how people approach issues like immigration, LGBTQ rights, um, and other minority rights, and I, the list goes on. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think you can be religious and live liberal at the same time? Yeah. So uh, I, one, to be clear, I don't believe that. I think the, pre the the assumptions that many can have is because I ascribe to some faith community or to some religion, I have to be conservative. I have to be conservative in my thinking. I have to be conservative in my ethics. I have to be conservative with every aspect of my life. I think what we've seen, especially post-2016, is just this emergence of voices that have uh, been pretty prominent and with their ideologies and their views. And as those um, as those voices have emerged, I think it's been easy for people to make the assumption and say, oh, all these believers, all evangelicals are conservative. Therefore, I'm going to push back against some of the things and values that they stand for. Um, and that's simply not true. Unfortunately, I think... Uh, there are individuals within faith communities who are prominent and known that would say they profess some faith in Christ and would say they're they're conservative, 
but I think really lack a, a level of compassion and care for some of the things that God really cares about. So I think those things are competing. And that's in that sense, that's why I would argue and say, because you profess some faith in God or in Christ or in Jesus, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to be conservative because the ideology around that may encompass, I may not care for migrant communities. I may not care about those who have been historically disenfranchised. So to some degree, I would ascribe to some sense of what it means to be conservative, but in some sense, others would say I'm very liberal. <laughs> so uh, in some circles, people can call me conservative and some circles where people will call me very liberal, um, depending on everyone's definition. But I think the emergence of you know, this current administration and certain voices vilifying certain communities has unfortunately painted a false narrative or a caricature for all evangelicals. Though I think there are there have been some strides, great strides met, made there, but unfortunately, there's been uh, some detractors as well. So I would like to talk a little bit about 2016 elections. There are exit polls um, that indicate that 58 percent of all evangelicals uh, voted for Trump. 81% of white evangelicals voted for Trump. Like in, in both instances, disproportionately high numbers voted for him. Now, when we see his rhetoric during election, before election, it was very, you know, anti-immigration, anti-minorities, vilifying minorities. When you say that there aren't as many voices that are being amplified that, that support marginalized communities, when we look at numbers, it seems like evangelicals supported him despite the hateful rhetoric, despite his bigotry. In your opinion, and I know you can't speak for all evangelicals, uh, but in your opinion, how do we reconcile with that? And how do we say, oh, you know what? Evangelicals voted for him, but this is not who they are. And and people say that. But I some I am very skeptical when I see the numbers and what's happening right now. Yeah, and, and rightly so, right? Uh, for me, I think as someone who professes faith in Christ, uh, the numbers can be fairly discouraging, right? You see individuals who would ascribe to or, or would equate his rhetoric to some sense of, you know, Christian Christianity and what it means to be a follower of Christ. For me, I think as I've as I've had the conversation the last several years and even pre-2016 with people within my communities and as I've traveled, I think I've noticed two things. Those individuals who may proclaim and say they're evangelicals, or to use another term to say they are believers in Christ, I've noticed two things. One, people don't know their Bibles, unfortunately. People don't know their Bibles. And two, I think there's a tremendous lack of aligning with the Spirit of God with some of these issues. And these are some of the realities that we really have to deal with. But one of the things I've, I've seen is American Christianity, this westernized Christianity, we love comfort. We and and any any threat against our comfort or our commodities that we believe that we have entitlement to as a threat to our whole being. So in other words, we have a real fear of the foreigner and the stranger, right? So when that fear comes to to the surface by way of administration and our current president who now is saying things 
that would only confirm some of the fears and concerns people have in their heart, then of course they're going to vote for him because they want to maintain that sense of security and safety for their families and for their communities. So if I hear from my elected officials that this specific set of individuals coming into our country are going to murder and you know do horrible things to my family and my children, I may want to keep my family safe, regardless of the moral fiber of this individual. Another thing, too, I think is historically for Democrats and even for some Republicans, but specifically for those within faith communities, we will side with the elected politician or prospective politician. We'll side with the one that would, you know, hold dear to, you know, pro-life and, you know, saving children, which I think is important. But I think it's it's also I think there's also a tension there where you can't say you're pro-life but not care for migrants. You can't say you're pro-life and not care about, you know, these detention centers and basically concentra- uh, concentration camps that we have today in our country today. So unfortunately, I think those two things have been happening. Um, so I think it's one, a lack of people knowing their Bibles and two, a lack of aligning with the spirit of God. And to be clear, caring for immigrants, refugees, children being separated from their families, communities that have been historically disenfranchised is not a bipartisan issue. It's not a bipartisan issue. It's the ethical and moral one. So now when I engage with individuals and have these conversations and they would claim to say, they will claim and say they profess some faith in Christ or in God or in some form of faith or religion. But when I see a lack of compassion and care for those who are marginalized, I'm not I'm not going in and saying you're not saved or you're not a believer, but I would really have that pe- person think critically about what they believe and why they believe it. And maybe they fashioned another God other than the real God that we, you know, love and and worship. So the numbers are discouraging. Yes, they're incredibly discouraging. I think the numbers also reveal to us what Western Christianity has done. It's formed a sense of false humility. It's formed a sense of false uh, holiness where we can ascribe to the truth that God's word lays out. But then when it when there's a threat to our security and our safety and when we lack compassion for those who truly need it, I think that's when people really need to reckon with the reality of do I really know God or do I really love the Lord? Because if we are to love God and love his people, we are called to love our neighbors. And and you mentioned fear. I approach this issue as a multifaceted issue where fear is one component. I would say this, though. Other than fear, there is this group in the U.S., that the group that wants to maintain its political and social dominance. So I think racism also plays a part in how we are treating marginalized groups or, or communities or disenfranchised communities as well, which people don't talk about as much, uh, which I think the more we talk about it, I think the better understanding we will have of race issues in the U.S. and we will be able to resolve them and move on. Moving on, um, I have noticed that on Twitter, you've been very vocal in the last couple of 
months about treatment of immigrants and migrants in America. And and we met on Twitter, by the way. And I was really impressed uh, with your unapologetic support of immigrants, refugees, uh, migrants, and how vocal you have been um, in support of them. And in recent days, you've posted a number of resources and articles on your Twitter page. Some are intended to explain why the process of getting citizenship is so difficult in America and um, to dispel this misconception that it's very easy to get in. And then you also make these references, biblical references. And I would like to quote one of your tweets that I really liked. And you you mentioned part of it already, but I just want to quote that. Um, You said in one of your tweets, let me be clear, caring about immigration, refugees or children being separated from their families is not a bipartisan issue. It's an ethical and moral one. Can you talk a little bit more about this? And have you found Twitter as a helpful platform to convey your message? What kind of um, feedback have you gotten? Yeah. Um, so Twitter has been helpful for those who either follow me or have been familiar with my story as I laid it out on Twitter. I had a family members, my aunt and uncle, who were unjustly deported from the country after being here for 20 years. So I used it as an opportunity to, one, share the their story, and two, to inform and educate people who may either have caricatures or misconceptions around viable pathways to citizenship because there are none, unfortunately. So, uh, so Twitter, in that respect, has been helpful. I didn't expect that thread to do what it did. I think, well, one, you know, by God's grace, I think I've been afforded relationships with people on both sides of the aisle, right? And what I've seen is that, you know, you know, storytelling uh, or advocating through storytelling is just a powerful medium. And at a certain point, you know, when you're having any kind of conversation or discussion with someone with a competing ideology, and you're sharing your story and your narrative with them, it's not a number. You're not simply a number. You're someone they know. And now they have to reckon with the reality that my ideology and my political views is actually a threat to my friend or my brother or my sister. So in that respect, I think Twitter has been really helpful in either uh, connections I've made with individuals. And so it's been helpful in that sense. Uh, where it's been discouraging to some degree, well, it has been discouraging, not to some degree, but it's been discouraging, is just seeing uh, just detractors and people saying hurtful things either through DMs or uh, just in some of the threads uh, that I posted as well, people just saying uh, unhelpful things, I think. But in, in, in terms of, you know, in, in terms of how we can engage this issue, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that our country our country's immigration system is deeply broken. I think as a starting point, let's just first acknowledge that, that our country's immigration system is deeply broken and it really caters to a specific set of people. We can see that clearly with the visa quota system, right? Um, So I think at first, let's, as best as we can, let's be informed and educate ourselves with that so that when we have these discussions and these conversations that we're at a starting point where we see, okay, our system is broken. Now, how we go about solving the various issues for immigrants or migrants or refugees is very complex. I'll admit that it's incredibly complex. I myself, I've been to Capitol Hill and I've sat down with uh, Congress 
members of Congress and our representatives, and they'll they'll play the dance with you, right? They they'll they'll say what you want to hear, but at the end of the day, and alluding to your point a bit too, is I think they want to maintain power and authority. So until their constituents, you know, start sending letters and phone calls about some of these issues, they will not change. Unfortunately, some some of our Congress members will not change their positions or their views on some of these issues because now is a threat to their livelihood, right? Again, going back to my original point about safety and security. So uh, that th- th- those are some of the things I've seen in, in regards to what you just asked. So, John, U.S. Constitution stipulates separation, the separation of church and state. The lines are getting blurry, especially with the elevated uh, political activism of evangelicals. What are your thoughts on that? One thing I've noticed in uh, a pattern I've noticed in the conversations I've had about this issue in terms of church and state is that I think most people come with presuppositions about uh, how involved the relationship should be between the church and the state. So when we see a lack of involvement from the church in terms of issues dealing with the state policies and laws, there's disappointment there. And then when there is too much involvement with from the church to the state involving some of these issues, there's also disappointments there as well. Um, that's why you see so many divisions within like-minded camps, because there's these assumptions made. And those assumptions or presuppositions are formed from you know various you know socioeconomic backgrounds, upbringings, etc. Um, I think as we look at how to do things rightly, or how do we do justice, or how do we exact uh, justice for people who have been disenfranchised or marginalized, we also need to look at what we see laid out in scripture as well. I think as men and women of faith, we need to call out the social inequities within our culture, and the church should offer a prophetic critique to that. So not not that the church needs to be so involved with the state so that everything that the church says the state needs to do, but the church is really there to offer a prophetic critique for it. So if you look at what the church did in the first century, when if you look at the Greco-Roman world, for example, where women weren't valued and children were seen as a nuance or problematic even if they had birth defects, et cetera, the first century church was instrumental in helping some of these children, creating hospitals, creating uh, refuge centers for these women who were either battered or abused. So the church is really there. God's vision for justice for the church and God's people is to foster care for the vulnerable. So even if we see within our own culture that there is a caricature being painted for certain communities, if anywhere that someone should fe- feel safe and accepted, it should be the church. Unfortunately, that hasn't been the reality broadly, but that should be the reality. And in some cases, for those who profess to know God, that also involves some level of civil disobedience, right? We see this in Exodus 1 with the midwives. We see this in First Kings with uh, Obadiah. We see in Daniel 3, right? We see all these examples in scripture where a man or woman stands between the gap between God's ethics and his truths and what is just good and pure against what culture would institute as law, right? So you see that with Daniel, and he literally stood against a law that was put in the land because it did not align with a truth and a conviction that he had with his God or with our God. So 
I think in some cases for the church, it will involve some level of civil disobedience. And for those within faith communities that would push back against that, I would just direct them to scripture (laughs) and see the examples that we see laid out there for us. And we also see throughout the Old Testament as well that God would literally exact judgment. You see this in Isaiah 1. God exacted judgment to his own people for the lack of care and concern for the quartet of the vulnerable, right? The poor, the the immigrant, the et cetera, the list goes on. So uh, I think those are things that, you know, we, we really need to grapple with and consider as we think about the relationship between the church and the state and that there are going to be seasons or times where the church needs to have a prophetic voice and needs to say that certain things are not right and that we need to offer space where people can be vulnerable and 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 um, provide refuge for individuals who desperately need it, and in some cases may involve civil disobedience, right? Standing against elected le- leaders and laws that are wrong, inherently wrong, not just because this is some ideology or ethics that God has laid out in Scripture, but because it's wrong to its core. It's wrong. So, John, I just have reservation with that, and here's why. And and when we look at the U.S. Constitution, like people who are from other faith groups or people who do not believe in any religion, how would it impact them? So if, if church were to play that role, do you think people like me would be alienated? So I would say no. I, the reason I say that is because within God's economy and what I would call as God's created order— Every single individual, regardless of political ideology, religious background, socioeconomic upbringing, are all image bearers, meaning for yourself or someone who would ascribe to, you know, being agnostic or atheist or some other form of, you know, thinking, inherently, they have value, dignity, and worth. So when I say civil disobedience, I say laws and policies that are a that are a threat to someone's dignity, value, and worth. So if that's the church, if that's a non-prof, or if that's whatever that provides a space where people feel uh, safe and vulnerable, I'm for that. What I'm also saying along with that is that the church should be that because of the principles that are laid out for us in scripture. So unfortunately, historically, especially, you know, the last hundred years or so, the church hasn't done the best job in doing that. So that's my critique. And what I'm adding on to that is that if any institution, meaning whatever religion that you ascribe to, and if your religion or your faith speaks to the marginalized and the oppressed in a specific manner, which I think Christianity does, that is the place where if anywhere people should feel safe and they would feel that they're not being judged or their humanity is being threatened. Now, thankfully, that has been happening within other entities and organizations. And I'm all for that because those are image bearers and those individuals and people need to feel they need to feel that sense of love and compassion and care because in some spaces that's not happening in the church. So that that's that's what I'm adding on to that, that because of the biblical principles and God's ethics the church should be a prophetic critique to the culture with the things that are happening. That hasn't happened, unfortunately. And my hope and prayer is that there can be more men and women that stand in the gap, that can 
partake in some level of civil disobedience and say these things are wrong and partner with people even in some instances outside of faith communities because within faith communities where their dollars are that's not where you know pushing back against laws and policies is not attractive for them so what you're saying is that constitution should still be independent of any particular religion it's how religion does oversight and that oversight is mostly in in form of civil disobedience or raising awareness or amplifying voices of marginalized is is that what you're trying to say well well yeah, sure to to a certain degree right i think because of the fallen nature of the world that we live in if i ascribe to some level of truth or ideology that i would say this is true it's objectively true and this this is a conviction that i have my hope and prayer is that if we ascribe to those truths that we can follow it through and say we need to have a care and concern for those who are vulnerable and marginalized now going back to the separation of church and state or the constitution i think that's fine i think there can be that separation it can be the state can still function as its own entity but within god's economy and god's created order the church ought to be this is what i'm saying the church ought to be because of the fallen nature of the world we live in the church ought to be a prophetic critique because in some instances like we see today people who should be cared for are not being cared for children are dying in what some would describe or what i would describe as constant concentration camps here in the united states now there are individuals within faith communities that would say we just need to romans 13 obey the laws of the land but when that principle competes with the ethics that god has laid out then that's when i say that's where there needs to be some degree of civil disobedience as much as we need to pray for our leaders and and respect them and follow the rule of law we also need to reckon with the reality that there are moments throughout redemptive history or throughout our culture and society when different policies and laws are put into place that are a threat to someone's humanity that regardless of your religion or socio on socioeconomic background that should never be the case and my argument is that the church should be because of the principles that are laid out there for us it should be the place of any that people should be feeling that level of care and concern and love because they're not feeling it within the state i'm not saying other entities or religions or institutions aren't doing the work they are and praise god for them and have relationships there i really do but the church my critique is the church ought to be a prophetic critique it hasn't been that and i'm can i'm making that connection because of the principles that are laid out for us in god's word and when we faltered there i think the other thing we need to reckon with is that and for those who ascribe to christianity or those who proclaim faith in christ we will give an account for those who are marginalized we will give an account for that we'll, we see that in matthew 25 right and our degree of care for the stranger or the for the vulnerable or those who have been historically marginalized or disenfranchised will reveal whether or not we are truly his because if we're if we're pushing away those who are most needed and are seeking refuge in asylum then that will reveal something to us because as a believer as a follower of Christ if i say i am a savior for uh, the lord jesus christ has saved me from you know the penalty of sin and death and I was lost in my state and he came in died on the cross 
and redeemed me and saved me. If I take that reality and that truth about my faith and don't apply to something a bit more real, which is people's humanity being threatened, then I think that's where for us, those who proclaim to know Jesus, that's where we really need to reckon with the reality. Okay, am I truly his? Maybe I formed some other God that isn't God himself. So that that's my critique. I'm saying church, if anything, should be a place where people should feel safe, a level of love and compassion and care, and the church should serve as a prophetic critique to culture and to the state when there are laws and policies that threaten people's humanity. And that's that's what's happening today. That's what I see happening today, um, unfortunately. Before we end our interview, I ask all my guests this question. This is like the standard question I ask. If you were to describe America in one word sentence, the way you see it, how would you do that? I think the word I would use is disillusioned. I think the reason I say that is because America the genetic makeup of this country is one of immigrants and people from all types of backgrounds. And we have, to some degree, have all come into this country with some level of assumption or presuppositions about what America should be. So I think by and large, just speaking very broadly, everyone, mostly everyone, is largely disillusioned and disappointed and let down by our own country. So that is from, you know, if you look at the color spectrum, you know, from one to 10, everyone is pretty disillusioned because there are some unmet needs or desires. I think to speak more frankly, uh, it's really catered to those who are in positions of privilege and, and power. So those who have been, you know, marginalized, historically marginalized, we felt the brunt of it, unfortunately. So the one word I would use would, I think would be disillusioned. Um, disillusioned in, in what this country should be for us. John, where can people find your clothing brand? What's the website where they can go if they want to buy it? Yeah, the site is native.supply. And your Twitter handle is at John Dulos, right? Yes, correct. It's John Dulos. Thank you so much, John. This was wonderful. And thank you for being on my show. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And thank you to all the listeners. Uh, come back next Tuesday when we will bring another amazing guest. In the meantime, stay connected. <laughs>